0: This episode of the podcast is brought to you by my YouTube channel. Free yoga is how I got started on my incredible yoga journey, and I want to bring you the same practices and principles that inspired me to begin my practice. On my channel, you'll find workouts and fitness videos, yoga flows, meditations, wellness vlogs, and more. You can click the link in my bio to subscribe to my channel and support me and free online yoga. Welcome to Balance Your Life Podcast. My name is Megan Farrell and I am the host of the show. This podcast is designed to inspire and empower you to start and maintain your own wellness journey so you can become the best version of yourself. Let's begin. Happy Monday, beautiful souls. Welcome back to another episode of Balance Your Life Podcast. I am your host, Megan Farrell-Gordon. And today we have an episode that is just not only is the guest of the show just a really great guy and like funny and fun, he's also so informative and there's just so many great tips inside of this podcast episode, especially if you're into more of the holistic and natural ways to deal with common problems, complex problems inflammation in the body. We get into herbs, adaptogens, medicinal mushrooms. We kind of go all over the place and you're getting a very well-rounded podcast episode. So today on the podcast, I am joined by Dr. Joshua Levitt. Dr. Josh Levitt is a naturopathic physician with a degree in physiology from UCLA, a doctorate in naturopathic medicine from Bastyr University, residency training in integrative medicine, over 10 years of of precepting medical students from the Yale School of Medicine, and over 20 years of direct clinical experience with thousands of patients. He has helped thousands of patients with natural solutions to common, chronic, and complex medical problems. His primary focus is on painful orthopedic and musculoskeletal conditions and helping people understand and treat their pain at the source. Dr. Leffitt is also the co-founder and medical director at Up Wellness, which is an eight figure company where he created a line of premium natural products that work. On this episode, we talk about the short and long-term effects of consuming antibiotics. In natural and holistic ways to heal chronic disease and problems. We also discuss how inflammation can lead to almost every chronic illness in the body and how we can treat and heal it. We talk about herbs, medicinal mushrooms, and adaptogens, and how we can use them to support our health and so much more. I think you guys are going to absolutely love Dr. Josh. I just think he's just such a great guy. He's funny. He's so smart. And he's just really on a mission to help people live a more holistic way of life. So with that, please welcome Dr. Joshua Levitt to the Balance Your Life podcast. Welcome to the show. I've always been super mindful of the products I put on my body as well as in my body and when I got pregnant, I wanted to make sure I was taking everything I needed to support my pregnancy, which included taking a quality prenatal vitamin and I chose Ritual to support me on my journey. What I really liked about the brand and their vitamin is that it's high quality and uses traceable key ingredients in clean bioavailable forms it's also non-gmo project verified soy free gluten free and vegan it also has a citrus enhanced capsule that's designed to be easy on the stomach so you can take it with or without food Please note these statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I think it's so important to build a foundation while creating life and to ensure I'm getting the right nutrients matters to me. Right now, Ritual is giving all Balance Your Life podcast listeners 10% off your first three months by going to Ritual.com forward slash Megan. That's Ritual.com forward slash M-E-G-H-A-N for 10% off your first three months. Welcome to the show, Dr. Joshua Levitt. I'm so excited to have you on.
1: I am excited to be here. Thank you for having me. This is fun. Thank you for doing this.
0: I would love if you could give our listeners a little bio of who you are and where in the world you are currently joining me from today.
1: Okay. Um, Let's start with the where in the world part. I am in Connecticut um, where we are just... just starting to flirt with spring, which is lovely, um, especially for me because I come from San Diego, California, is where I was born. Um, I am an old surfer, and uh, I'm just, I, you know, I suppose warm-blooded. Um, so that's my my background. Uh, my educational background and my career path is a, is a kind of a twisty and interesting one. I went to UCLA as an undergrad, intent on being a physician, which I which I am now. But I'm I'm sort of not the physician that I thought I would be um, back then. Back then, I thought I'd be maybe an orthopedic surgeon or something like that. Um, I was convinced by a bunch of doctors at UCLA at the time that medicine was going in a different direction. They actually were pretty um, vociferously encouraging me not to go into a career in medicine. So after my my time at UCLA, where I got an undergraduate degree in physiology, I went off and and traveled around the world for a year. I was fortunate to be able to do that. So I had a backpack on. I was sleeping on beaches and hitchhiking, that, that sort of thing in my early 20s. And um, during that trip, I was making my way uh, on an airplane into Switzerland for part of this adventure. And on that airplane ride, a blister that I had developed on the back of my foot um, became infected. And I got this problem that you've probably heard of before called cellulitis. It was a really severe uh, infection and it gave me a fever and it was running up my leg and it was a big, big problem. And I knew it. Uh, Anyway, I arrived in Switzerland. I was able to get a prescription for antibiotics called in to a Swiss pharmacy. And in that Swiss pharmacy, I found not only the prescription that really saved me, my, my leg and maybe even my life, but also I found that in Switzerland, um, pharmacies have herbal medicines they have tea they have homeopathic medicines they have all this kind of stuff in europe they seem to have kind of kept the old medicines the 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 you know there was a time when all medicine was natural medicine kind of on the shelves and so that inspired me immensely and and basically kind of just captivated me such that it became a passion that's driven my entire career, right? so that that was my first exposure. It's funny thing, you know, here I am a natural medicine doctor, and I got my start in a pharmacy when I needed antibiotics. It's kind of a weird, you know interesting story anyway, fast forward twenty five years later, I'm still at it. Herbal medicine is still a passion. natural medicine is still a passion, especially at the intersection where Western medicine, mainstream medicine, and natural medicine—they're—they're they're like there's this big gap in between those two, and I feel like my career path is to kind of help unite or build a bridge in between those two those two worlds. So anyway, that that's me, and that looks like a doctor who sees patients. That looks like a person who formulates products for a company that I own, um, and uh, everything natural medicine. That's my that's my gig.
0: It's so fascinating. I remember listening to somebody else on a podcast once talk about she'd gotten really, really sick and I cannot remember what she was sick with, but she was in Italy and she went in same kind of story as you. She went in for a prescription that was called in and the pharmacist at the time ended up giving her like propolis, like be propolis, like help with things. And she goes, that's what took away whatever condition she was struggling with at the time. And the pharmacist was talking to her about the properties of B propolis and the benefits of it. And she was like, why is this not being talked about more, more than not? And, you know, in, it sounds like in Europe, these things are kind of like second nature. They just kind of go hand in hand with things, but here it feels like in Canada and the U S it's like, here's your drugs, you got pain, here's some medicine.
1: Yeah. And,
0: you know, it, you know just learn to kind of deal with it rather than taking the more holistic naturopathic approach to things
1: yeah totally you're you're absolutely right and that story i'm sure there's many other people who have that same story too i think about it kind of as as there's a metaphor here that that it's really interesting it's like if you think of music and the evolution of the way that we listen to music like you know it went from the old gramophones the vinyl records to like eight track tapes to cassette tapes to cds and and then to solid state and now to streaming right like there's this evolution and in in, in america and in probably in canada maybe just north america in general there's this like seduction of the new right so as soon as a new thing comes out we adopt the new thing and we get rid of the old thing of course vinyl records are starting to come back now as a as a hip trend but like that's kind of the idea is like here comes this new thing let's get rid of the old thing because the new thing is better well that same thing happens to us in medicine too right Like at one point, 100 hundred years ago, I mean, antibiotics only came into widespread use in the 1940s, less than a hundred years ago. So a hundred years ago, all medicine was natural medicine, right? Herbs, and maybe some of it was toxic, mercury, arsenic, these kinds of things. But like all medicine was natural medicine at some point. And then comes better living through chemistry. Then comes the, the discovery of antibiotics and biopharmaceuticals. And so we in this country seem very content to just get rid of all the old stuff you know uh whatever whether it was nutritional or herbal or whatever and then go with the new whereas in Europe i guess if the metaphor would 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 hold up they would just keep the vinyl records keep the eight track tapes keep the cassette tapes keep the cd's it's all still good it all has its value you know um and here you know we've abandoned the old in favor of the new and now we're learning a very pricey and dangerous lesson as a result of that you know the natural medicine is really um, should be a part of our healthcare ecosystem. No question about it.
0: Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more with you about that. And I would love to ask, I feel like you're the perfect person to ask this. What are some of the side effects of potentially just hopping on board and taking like an antibiotic at the moment you feel like a sniffle coming in, or like you're feeling a little sick, and you go to the doctor and they're like, here's some antibiotics like besides the fact that I feel like you can see a commercial or ra- whatever radio TV do people even have commercials anymore and it's like all these side effects that come with like some of those heavier drugs but even like generically like let's talk about antibiotics what are some of the risk factors of that doing to our health that are maybe both short-term and long-term
1: yeah, that's a, it's a great question, um, and I'm going to start my answer by saying that we should feel grateful and blessed to have antibiotics when we need them. That's the that's the first thing. Like, there, it's amazing, right? It's amazing that conditions like cellulitis or like streptococcal pharyngitis or any number of different conditions that would have literally killed a person, you know, a hundred years ago, are now readily treatable, and you're better within 24 hours. That part's amazing, right? But I think with that comes this seduction, right? The idea that like, oh, these antibiotics, you know, we can just give them out like candy and they're given and they're, they're, yes, they are absolutely useful part of the medical uh, toolkit, so to speak, and they are grossly overprescribed to both humans and animals. Um, And that is a controversial statement. Um, I think the animals is not terribly controversial. They're, they're you know most of the antibiotics that are produced by pharma companies are used on livestock um, to help keep them uh, away from infections and then that translates into their flesh and we you know, wind up with all sorts of problems and i'll get into the specifics there so um and they're also widely overused in humans as well often for infections that are not bacterial antibiotics just kill bacteria they don't kill viruses they don't kill fungus they don't kill yeast uh, and yet Many, many people wind up coming home from a doctor's visit for a viral infection with a prescription for antibiotics, which kill bacteria. Um, and so your question was, what are the sort of short and long-term consequences of that? Um, well, the short-term ones are, you're, you're just taking an un- unnecessary drug, right? And there's all kinds of potential problems with that. One is that antibiotics kill bacteria. And there are many bacteria, trillions of them, that live inside of our GI tract that are necessary and helpful and useful in our health in all kinds of ways, not just in the gut, but the GI microbiome, as it's known, is, a, is, a, is an area of intense research interest right now. We know that these trillions of organisms have a lot to do with our health in the gut, in our immune system, our brain and mind and mood health, our immunological health. So you're killing off the organisms that are beneficial as well as the organisms that might be problematic with antibiotics. That's a problem number one and probably one of the biggest downsides of taking antibiotics when you don't need them. Uh, The other, which is a big problem and worsening problem now, is the increase of the risk of development of antibiotic-resistant bugs, right? So the more these bugs, bacteria, are exposed to antibiotics, the more likely they are to figure out a workaround right? And if they figure out a workaround, how to get past amoxicillin, how to get past azithromycin, how to get around it, they do this by quickly genetically mutating. Then you now have a bug that's called a superbug. And we have a huge problem now where, uh, because of overuse of antibiotics, we have the development of these antimicrobial resistant strains. And when we run out of antibiotics to treat a bacteria and there's none left that treat it, we have a big problem. Now we have uh, you know, a, a simple critter like Staphylococcus aureus that is now resistant to all kinds of different drugs. And now what used to be a simple little red bump that was readily treated with an antibiotic now can kill you um, as, a, as a MRSA infection. So yeah, those are the consequences. It's, uh, it's not trivial.
0: I would love to ask you. There was a naturopathic doctor I listened to once on a podcast, and he was talking about when we take antibiotics, uh, unless it's absolutely needed, in which case, you know, sometimes it is. But he was saying like it wipes out bacteria. It's like a two year process for your body to kind of get back into where it was at before, as far as like the good and bad bacteria in the body. Like it it gets rid of everything, and then it's like a two year process for the body to get back into balance. Is that like, is there any validity to that? Because I was like, that's a long time for the body to reset after having even like a, a week long of antibiotics. That seems really intense.
1: Yeah, it, it, it I think it is more intense than most people physicians and patients give it credit for. Um the the two-year figure may apply in some instances and may not in others. Now this is it, 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 I guess the the no one loves this answer but it kind of depends, right? It depends on the antibiotic, it depends on the infection being treated, and it depends on the health of the ecosystem in your GI tract. Antibiotics certainly do big damage, some worse than others, um, to the health of the gastrointestinal microbiome. And the, the way I like to think about it, I like metaphors, right. Is like, there is a garden and it's more than a garden. It's an ecosystem inside of your GI tract and, and not just in your GI tract, everywhere else too, in your, in, in your nose in your mouth, you know, all over your skin. And, um, and it's colonized by trillions of, of bacteria. And it's like when it's healthy, It's like a healthy ecosystem. You know, there's all sorts of different species in there. You might think of it as like a rainforest of trees and bushes and low-lying plants and flowers and all this sort of stuff, right? And when it's in balance, everything kind of keeps itself in check. It's like a healthy ecosystem. You know, some species grow, some go down. So it's actually constantly in flux. But then if you come in there and you torch it all or clear-cut it, so to speak, right? Wipe out all the organisms that are there, or at least a lot of them, the ones that are vulnerable to that antibiotic that you took, you're going to have to start over, right? You're, the, those, the, the, the ground is clear and new organisms are going to pop up, probably ones that are... Um, Able to thrive or grow in the presence of the antibiotic. Um, and maybe even some others as well. And yeah, that restoration of the full ecosystem can take, uh, I mean, it's not, it's not clear that it's ever going to come back to exactly the way it was before. And that may not be necessary. You know, there's probably lots of different ecosystems that can, that can, that can, uh, prove helpful to people. But when you wipe out, all the species of bacteria in the GI tract, what grows back in its place when the forest has been clear cut is going to look different than the original forest. There's just no question about that. And our job as physicians is try to minimize the clear cutting, right? Minimize the torching of that forest and then try to keep or hold the ground, you know, with, with probiotics and other types of organisms that can be used to help retain the health and the balance of that ecosystem. It's not just health and balance. It's also diversity of the organisms that live there. So yeah, I am not a fan at all of the overuse uh, or excessive use of antibiotics. That is for sure.
0: Yeah, it's funny. Even when you said like the unnecessary use of antibiotics, I remember one of my appointments with my doctor, we were just talking before I hit record that I'm expecting my first baby. And one of the things she had said was, oh yeah, we don't do the, they used to do drops in the eyes for like I think it was like syphilis or gonorrhea and she's like we don't do that anymore unless you have an issue with that because it was just such an unnecessary practice like how many babies are really born with gonorrhea or syphilis unless the the mother has it and it just in my head I go you used to do that just because like I mean that just seems so Unnecessary and to like bombard a baby's immune system right away with like just yeah. in case this happens to you like it it right. makes a lot of sense that we're getting away from doing all these unnecessary things unless of course it's warranted or needed
1: yeah, and you bring up an interesting point, you know it happens a lot in obstetrics um where but in other in other areas too, where you know interventions are you, there's two ways to when you think about medicine you've got medicine for the person who is a patient right maybe it's a mom maybe it's a baby maybe it, whoever it is um and that's a one on one thing right that's between the doctor and the patient and then you've got this thing called public health right which is like treatment of populations of people and when you're treating an entire population of people, maybe million, you know, it could, whatever it could be the size of a city, it could be a state, you know, a regional health department, uh, a, a, a national uh, health department, like you know, or 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 a massive public health scale. Treating a population is very different than treating an individual, and they don't always dovetail so perfectly, right? Like that which is appropriate or right for an entire population of people in a country or in a state might not be appropriate for some of the individuals within that state. And so then you're now you're in this kind of push and pull where like, hey, I don't think that my baby should get this treatment because I don't really have that disease, you know? So why would my baby need to get this treatment for a disease that I don't have? Well, the public health answer is, If we just treat all the babies, you know, we avoid this problem, which is a terrible problem, and we don't really cause too much hassle. You know, it's just an eye drop, doesn't really mess people up that bad. So the idea is like it's a very it's a public health measure that makes sense at population scale, but it may not make sense at individual scale. And that's a very interesting thing to explore, you know. Um, Yeah.
0: I want to switch gears and talk a little bit more about the people who are potentially living with more of like a chronic illness or virus or problem and kind of this idea of doing things the more natural way Mm -hmm. can sometimes be a long-term thing right they're like I'm in pain now I need I need help now there's I don't have time I don't have weeks or months or years to allow some of these naturopathic things to kick in like I need something now and you know we were talking about this resistance of when it comes to antibiotics, like building a resistance, but it's the same, I think with like pain medication, even for like a little bit of context, my husband has two herniated discs in his back. And one of the surgeons we saw was just like, you're going to have to deal with the pain because there's no, like, yeah, you can take, you know, he was prescribed Oxycontin by another family doctor who he's no longer with. And I mean, didn't even blink, like here's a hundred Percocets and Oxycontin, like this will help. And The other surgeon was like, yeah, you're going to become addicted to it. You're going to need more to like help with the pain threshold. But I can also appreciate people who are like, I'm in pain now and I need help now. But I guess what are some of the long-term effects of getting a short-term solution, but it leads to long-term problems? And then what are some long-term things maybe that we can start to do to help alleviate some of those common chronic problems that we may have. And it might take a week. It might take a few months. It might take a few years, but something that will be a long-term solution.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, And I think you're right first, just to validate the experience that you're talking about with your husband and lots of people who are suffering in an acute way. Um, suffering is a great motivator, right? Like pain uh, or suffering of various sorts. And as much as I would love to believe that people would want to come to a natural doctor and say something like, you know, Hey doc, I'm doing great. And I just want to keep it that way. You know, that would be, that would be great. You know, like I'm super healthy. I feel great. I'm everything works. And I want you to help me keep it that way i i i I'll tell you, Megan, that never happens right? That's not what happens. People come in to natural doctors or any doctors because they're suffering. They're suffering in some way or another. It might be physical suffering, emotional suffering, and they want a solution they and 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 a lot of them will understand that things like dietary changes right things like lifestyle modification maybe better exercise better sleep all these kind of longer term projects are part of the solution but they want help now and that's been a big kind of part of my life and my my clinical practice for sure um and so i think the way that i've handled that in 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 situations like your husband's let's take that orthopedic pain as an example is yeah we have to find ways to um, help the person understand their situation first. And his orthopedic one is, is really intense, right? Um, serious back pain and the evidence of disc herniations. The first thing that I would probably tell him, which is really, really important. And you can tell it, tell him that I said, this is that there are lots and lots of people who have herniated discs in their lumbar spine who do not have back pain. There are lots and lots of people who have herniated discs who do not have back pain. Right. Um, and, and like, in 30-year-olds, about 30% of people, 40-year-olds, about 40%, 50% of 50-year-olds, and so on. So just because you have herniated discs does not mean that you have a life of pain. It's a very important lesson. And for a lot of people, that piece of information alone, which is a medical fact, um, is very comforting. It's like, oh, just because it's very easy to look at that MRI and be like, Oh my gosh, I saw it. It was bulging out. It looked terrible, but I don't know what he does for a living, but he's probably not a radiologist. So he probably doesn't really know what he's looking at. And he's looking at something that the doctor tells him is scary and is associated with his pain. And it may be somewhat related to it, but it also may not be. And there's probably going to be a time where he's going to have disc herniations in his back and not have pain right? Because most people will go through kind of a cycle of, of, of pain that comes and goes with a problem like that. So I like to educate people a little bit and talk them off a ledge because most people who are in pain and suffering envision like a lifetime of pain or a lifetime of immobility, or, you know, I'm not going to be able to hold my kid. I'm not going to be able to do this and that. Right. And so first talk them off a ledge. Let's, let's look at the facts here and then intervene with treatments that can provide some short-term relief that can give them hope moving forward and what i would say for as you mentioned musculoskeletal pain so we're, we'll stick with that but i think it's really important that we understand that when people have musculoskeletal pain there's three big drivers that cause the pain one of them is inflammation or excessive inflammation another is muscular tension in or around the area where there might be a problem and the third is fibrosis the um accumulation of scar tissue in an area. And so what I tend to do in an acute musculoskeletal pain situation like that is treat those, treat those. And there's a number of different things we can talk in detail about ingredients and 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 whatnot in, in the herbal medicine and nutritional medicine world that can treat those problems and give them short-term, temporary, maybe not even temporary, but but impressive relief in the short-term so that they can then believe in themselves again, realize and understand that they are not broken, that this is not a lifetime of pain and misery. And then we can start working on those other things, those slower things, those dietary things, those lifestyle modifications. Does that answer your question?
0: Yes. No, it absolutely answers the question. And I, I it's it's hard for somebody like myself to relate because I've never been in like that type of you know, chronic pain. And I just you yeah. you hear pe- people or you know, people that are just like, I need help yesterday, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And, you know, there is an appeal to having, let's say, like a little pill that takes away all of that. But you also know, it's such a short term thing in the in the long run, right? Like you shouldn't be on medication like that for forever. It, it does so much more damage, I think, to the body and to the mind than than good. But just like a lot of other things, I think we're so conditioned to like getting results now. Like this is I want to, you know, if I lift this weight, I want to be looking like the rock the next day. And it's it's such a it's a it's a longer term thing. But I think what people don't realize is. You feel so good when you get into these habits of being healthier. And uh, you said there's no person that would ever come to you for a preventative measure. I just want to let you know I was that person. I went to a naturopathic doctor and I was like, there's nothing wrong with me, but I'm pregnant and I just want to make sure I'm doing all the right things. And um, yeah, you know, right, I, right. I think there's good for
1: you. Pregnancy, pregnancy will do that. Pregnancy will do that. You know, uh, kind of, you know, put people into a position where they're like, Oh, I want to, I want to continue taking good care of myself. And so I'm glad, I'm glad that you uh, bucked <laughs> the trend there and, uh, and went in feeling good and wanting to keep it that way. Yeah. It's uh, it's an uncommon phenomenon. That's for sure.
0: Let's say somebody is like, Hey, like I, you know, maybe I'm not in the greatest health or maybe I'm in okay health, but I feel like I could do better. If someone were to go see like a naturopathic doctor what are things that you are looking at when it comes to the patient as a whole? Because I went through a whole regimen with my naturopathic doctor. But for anyone who's listening and um, is curious, like, what exactly are you looking at? Because I think when we go to like our traditional family doctor, or you know, uh, conventional doctor, it's like, my head hurts. And they're like, here's here's the solution. Long-term, short-term, here's the solution. But I know a naturopathic doctor is different. So what is it that you're looking at when it comes to a client who's coming in to see you either from a preventative measure or from a more reactive measure?
1: Yeah, I think so many people have the experience with with Western medicine that it serves. I think the best way to answer that question is by talking about how the two compare. Um, So in Western medicine, What typically happens when a person's coming in with some kind of complaint is the search for a diagnosis, right? Like, what is this problem? Is it a migraine? Is it IBS? Is it ulcerative colitis? Is it a meniscus tear? Whatever. We're looking for a diagnosis. And then when that diagnosis is discovered, right, either by a lab test or a clinical exam or an imaging study or something, um, at that point, you have a diagnosis, And then there is a menu of options for treatment, right? Like, you know, and it might be a medication, it might be a surgery, it might be whatever, whatever the case may be. So at the point when the diagnosis is made, the thinking in kind of conventional traditional or Western medicine kind of stops and you just move into the treatment. Like, you know, work, work your way up the line, start with this medication, then move to that. And there's guidelines that talk about this. Here's a person, they have high blood pressure. That's the diagnosis. Start with this drug. And if that doesn't work, we move to this drug. There's not a lot of thinking once the diagnosis is made in contrast in naturopathic medicine. And every doctor is a little bit different, but I would say that this holds true for most of us when the diagnosis is made is when the thinking begins right it's the opposite right so a person comes in they have a problem we diagnose it oh it's high blood pressure oh it's endometriosis oh it's IBS whatever the problem is and then we start asking this very important question which is why why did this happen why, why does this person have this problem and it's less about although there's it, there's a lot of importance like we just said to finding some relieving suffering right we all want to relieve suffering Um, And we want to do that quickly and efficiently and safely. But in addition to relieving suffering, we want to ask that deeper question, which is why is this suffering occurring in the first place and see what we can do to unlock that at the core level, right? So like like I I mentioned with your husband, you have disc herniations, that's the diagnosis. The treatment is just like, okay, pain meds, right? Uh, He has pain or maybe there's a surgery or an injection or something like that that could be done. In naturopathic medicine, it's going to be like, okay, sure, you have disc herniations, but what else is going on? What led to this problem? What led to this deficiency? What can we do? And I mentioned those three things, inflammation, muscle tension, fibrosis, connective tissue integrity, other things that might underlie that painful syndrome and start to treat those in addition to the relieving of suffering. So yeah, it's a a lot more, I think it's a more thoughtful approach to, to care and taking into account all of the things that make us who we are. That's the body and all the things that influence the body that's the mind and, and and even the spirit too right like you know what what makes us what makes us whole and thinking about like the the person who's a patient doesn't exist in isolation right they their their eye their heart their their bowel their uterus it's all part of them and they exist in their own little ecosystem with their partner and their own families and the environment in which they live Um, and the planet upon which we live, right? So we we try to take into account all of those things. Yeah.
0: And I want to stick with one of the things that you had brought up because I feel like it's such a hot topic these days is this idea of inflammation in the body and how many diseases and things it can lead to. I would love if you could talk a little bit more about inflammation in the body because I think people think of one kind of thing, like, oh, if I eat greasy, bad food, it inflames my body. And like, Mm -hmm. that's that, right? Like once I don't eat it anymore, I'm fine. But there's so much more, I think that contributes to inflammation that's sometimes a little bit more subtle. And it's not such in your face as like eating McDonald's. And then maybe you can talk about what sort of problems inflammation can lead to, because I think it's something that a lot of people are really, really looking at as far as, you know, the immune system and uh, other diseases that are being in present in our body. And we're really kind of narrowing it down to inflammation in the body.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think the place to start here is that, and, and something that a lot of people don't understand is that Inflammation is absolutely necessary and critical for survival. It's a fundamental, super important biological process that we would literally die pretty quickly without it, right? We absolutely need it. Um, And it helps us respond to injury. It helps us respond to infections. It's part, it's a normal, natural, healthy immunologic response. The problem is when inflammation is excessive or uncontrolled at that point, it becomes a devastating force and, and, and a, and a leading underlying cause of virtually every chronic disease that there is. Interestingly, inflammation, uh, gets its name from, from a Latin word "inflammo," flamo to inflame, um, And that's, so inflammation is named after fire. It means to set a blaze and inflammation and fire share a lot of similarities because fire, if you think about it, like evolutionary history, it's fundamental to our survival, right? Fire fire is like one of the big things that made our civilizations what they are, right? We cook with it. We stay warm with it. It's necessary, really quite critical for our survival. Um, But when fire is out of control, it is a devastating and destructive force right we love a campfire and singing songs around it we love a candlelit dinner but if the candles light the curtains on fire we have a big problem right and inflammation is just like that right we need it when it's controlled and contained and when it's not controlled and contained when it, when the when the campfire escapes the fire pit you have a big big problem so that's part that's the important piece does that make sense like inflammation a necessary but potentially destructive force. And then going on from there, you know, the big problems in so much of, of, of chronic disease, and we're talking about chronic heart disease, we're talking about numerous different cancers, gastrointestinal illnesses, dermatologic illnesses, uh, psychiatric illnesses, across the board, chronic diseases are known to be associated with excessive levels of inflammation. And so, what do I mean by excessive? A, a reaction that is greater than it should be given the stimulus, right? And so <clears throat> there's a lot of factors that lead to that fire burning hotter than it should or being more likely to escape the fire pit. And you mentioned the primary one, which is which is the diet, right? The the, the nature or the character of your inflammatory response, no matter what the stimulus is, if you got bit by a mosquito, if you stub your toe, or if you had a, a ulcerative colitis, you know, or a disc herniation like your husband. Those are all stimuluses that should provoke an inflammatory response. But in some people, if your diet is bad and loaded with a bunch of the wrong kinds of fats and and too much sugar and a bunch of sort of toxic compounds in your diet, no matter the stimulus, you're going to have a greater than normal inflammatory response, a bigger, redder, hotter, itchier mosquito bite, right? A more swollen, more painful stub toe. Um, And, That's the problem. Right. So when we have the wrong diet and the wrong lifestyle that leads to excessive production of these inflammatory chemicals, we get more inflamed no matter what the stimulus is. And when that process continues and continues and continues, um, it is destructive and it causes virtually every chronic disease in the book.
0: What are some things that we can do either nutritionally wise or like herbal wise that we can do that will help with inflammation? Because I feel like there's always things that we can do to be preventative. We can watch our stress levels, you know, we can do breath work or meditate or just be out in nature, find ways to calm down. But I'm also very much of the mindset of like, we live in the world, real world, inflammation is going to happen. Things are going to happen. Yeah, but maybe what are some things that we can do daily that would help with kind of controlling or at least reducing some of the inflammation in our bodies?
1: Yeah, for sure. I, I, w- I want to tell you, a, a, a share with you a fascinating study first, because you mentioned going out in nature and reducing our stress levels. And we're talking about inflammation here. Um, And I talked about this as like a as a as a body mind and spirit kind of phenomenon, right? Yes, there's dietary things, and I'm happy to talk about those. Yes, there's herbal medicines that, that are out there in the world that can address inflammation, really at its core level. But there's it's, it's even goes beyond that. And there's one thing that I want to share with you that's that's awesome in the in the true sense of the word. And I say awesome, both in the kind of like surfer way, but also in the way that what awesome really means is that is is about the experience of awe, right? So there was a study. And it's been well known for a long time that negative emotions are associated with negative health and positive emotions are associated with positive health. Things like happiness and joy and love and contentment and that sort of stuff. And so some researchers in in Berkeley, in in University of California at Berkeley, uh, asked the question. And the question was, of the various positive emotions, because there's many different little nuances there, which one's the most strongly associated with better health, right? Or better health as far as inflammation is concerned. They're measuring a chemical called interleukin-6, which is one of the compounds that's used to measure inflammatory levels in the body. And they found out that of all the different positive emotions, joy, contentment, happiness, love, these kinds of things, the the strongest association with lower levels of IL-6 was the regular experience of awe, A-W-E. So when we go out into the world, whether it is in our own bodies, with our partners, with our pets, in nature the ocean, the mountains, the trees, the bugs, whatever, when we look at the world through the lens of awe, right? Like, wow, like that is amazing, you know, just, and it's everywhere. It could be something deeply profound or it could be something so simple, you know, Um, the people who experience awe the most frequently have lower levels of IL-6. So that's kind of an example of, I mean, geez, like what an amazing anti-inflammatory that is. Just go look for something awesome and like appreciate it, you know? Um, That's the sort of lifestyle intervention that I love to talk about. I mean, what better prescription is there than just go find something awesome, right? I love that.
0: It's, It's funny because I have a girlfriend who calls herself like a beauty hunter and not like the makeup or skincare type of beauty, but like, she's like, I like on her walk, she's like, I'll just like, look at the flowers. And like, if a bee comes by and just like, I'll like, watch how the bee interacts with the flower. And I loved it so much because it's something that I think sometimes in the wellness world and the health world, we get so caught up in all of the big biohacking things. And like, unless you have all of these big things, like you're not going to be the healthiest version of yourself. And, you know, I have so many experts and doctors that really, it's like, it go back to basics. Like, Go find something that brings you joy and makes you like, it brings you awe be out in nature. Like, I mean, it doesn't cost her anything to go look for a bee that's interacting with a flower. Right, and she's right. just like, it brings me like, I'm just like, she's in awe over it. You know what I mean? Like, yep. it's just something that just brings her so much peace and contentment. Yeah. Too.
1: It's, it's so, it's so great. And you know, is that a treatment for somebody who has, you know, a severe autoimmune disease? Probably not. It's probably not like the only thing, but it's a good, it's a good thing, right. To center somebody and ground them. Uh, You know, I I think, you know, I don't want people to get the mistaken impression. If someone's coming in with a severe pathology of some sort, you know, they're going to come into my office. I'm going to be like, go look at bees. You know, you'll be fine. You know, you'll stop (laughs) bleeding or whatever. Of course, of course not. You know, we got to be balanced and rational in our approach to things, but yeah, like recognizing the power of that out, you know, that kind of connection to other people, to nature, is a really important thing, and it turns out that science supports it's actually anti-inflammatory as well. And then, of course, there's other things. I mean, those biohack things um, and the dietary and nutritional things are popular for a reason. They they really do move the needle. Uh, you know, I think it's important to not leave the inflammation conversation without talking about the diet. So, you know, the excessive, we might even call it an epidemic of excessive inflammation, is largely attributed to dietary problems and those dietary problems are primarily around the the cause of them is is primarily around the consumption of ultra processed foods right so we 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 have foods that are no longer directly sourced from the farms from the fields from the fisheries and rather sourced from big multinational corporations. You know, I like to think of like the the perimeter of the grocery store, right? You know, it's like produce and meat and fish and eggs, and you know, it's like it's like the perimeter is where the food is, and everything in the middle is just all that highly processed stuff. And um, it's the consumption of all that highly processed stuff, and it's loaded with sugar, it's loaded with toxins, and it's loaded with the with problematic fats, uh, especially omega six oils. And fats that incorporate themselves into our cellular membranes and promote the uh, production of excessive inflammatory mediators, and so that's that's a big part of it. So we want to eat in a way that's close to the earth, uh, down to earth eating, I like to call it, or minimally processed foods. And um, we can get into the specifics of that, but like if you stick to the perimeter of the grocery store, foods that are in their whole, minimally processed form, prepared by humans, not by you know big multinational corporations it's 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 hard to go wrong um yes there is some nuance you know if we want to eat animal protein we should probably try to eat animal protein from healthy animals right that were raised on 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 healthy terrain you know and fed a healthy diet that sort of thing if we're going to eat fish we should probably eat fish that are healthy fish that aren't uh you know fed fish chow in a fish farm or something like that so yeah there's some nuance there but you know when you stick to minimally processed whole foods it's hard to go wrong and then you asked about herbal things i mean there's a lot of medicines in the herbal realm herbal kingdom that are powerful anti-inflammatories and and many of them are spices that we commonly know use in our kitchens turmeric is one of the is one of the favorites and it's active ingredient curcumin um, I use a lot of Boswellia, which is frankincense as an as an anti-inflammatory herbal medicine. Um, and the list goes on and on and on. We could talk about herbs all day. Adaptogens, um, and they're there there's so many of them. That's a whole realm that we could that we could discuss as well, and their ability to help control uh excessive inflammatory reactions as well.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny. I do want to focus in on adaptogens, but I will say I had another expert on the podcast and You know, one of the things that I think people get really caught up in when it comes to like diet and nutrition is, should you be keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian? Should you eat meat? Should you be a carnivore? And, you know, we were talking about that and he goes, you know, the one thing that they all have in common that I love is that they all say don't eat processed food. That's the bottom line Mm -hmm. is like, do not eat or consume as little as possible because like, you know, if it's your birthday, absolutely go, I think go ahead and have the piece of cake and stuff. But I think as a general rule of thumb, let's not eat the processed sugary foods and just try to stay to nature as much as possible. But um, I would love if we could talk a little bit about adaptogenic herbs, because I think that's a really, really hot topic. But it's one that people kind of get confused about, like, what is an adaptogenic herb? should I be consuming it? You know, what are the kind of options? Cause I mean, there's things like off the top of my head, you know, you can hear about like Reishi and lion's mane and cordyceps and Turkey, Turkey tail or Turkey neck. One of those ones, Turkey tail, Turkey tail. <laughs> turkey <yeah>. tail. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it, it just, it's like, it's almost that like concept of like, the more, you know, the less, you know, when it comes to health and wellness. And you're like, I don't even know where to begin when it comes to <laughs> adding this stuff yeah. to my diet.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or into your herbal medicine protocol. Totally. Adaptogens are confusing for sure. Um, I educate a lot about them, um, both in person and online. And and I understand, you know, it's 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 a weird word, adaptogens. Like, what does that even mean? Um, and so yeah, let's talk about it. So adaptogenic herbs, they're 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 all it, it, it's a it's a family of herbs, but not in the botanical sense, right? So these herbs are you know they grow all over the world and different uh, in 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 different um, different places, um, and they're not a botanical family in the same way that like uh, you know that that broccoli is related to cauliflower is related to kale, right? You know those are actually all the same plant. These are different plants, but they have similar actions. So they're a family because they kind of do something similar. And let, let let's start this conversation this way. Many adaptogens including the medicinal mushrooms or including plants like rhodiola or maca or eleuthero, these plants grow in adverse environmental conditions. So uh, cold weather, high altitude, dry weather, etc. And if you think of a plant, they don't have the ability to locomote, right? They can't move around. So if it's cold, they can't like go get a sweater, you know, or if they're thirsty, they can't go get a drink. They just let's, they just exist where they are, right? So for that reason, plants have had to adapt, right? They've had to figure out ways, and it's not figuring out in the cognitive sense, but evolve ways to survive in adverse environmental conditions. And when, the, and the way that plants do that is by chemistry, right? So there's chemicals inside these plants pick any adaptogenic herb. You mentioned a bunch of them, including mushrooms. I added rhodiola, luthrococus, maca, goji berries, these kinds of things, these famous adaptogens. Those plants have chemicals inside of them that allow them as a plant to survive in challenging environmental conditions. The for example, grows in like Siberia. It's freezing cold in the tundra, but this berry survives, right? How does it do that? does that through chemistry rhodiola similar maca similar mushrooms similar so it turns out and this is fascinating and super cosmically cool at least in my opinion the very same chemicals that allow those plants to adapt to stressful environmental conditions when humans consume them allow humans to better adapt to stressful environmental conditions Our conditions are a little different, right? The stresses that we have aren't like maybe cold or high altitude, although that is a problem for some people if they're climbing high mountains and stuff. But adaptogenic plants have chemicals inside of them that help us adapt to stressful conditions. That's what adaptogens are for. And that's how they're used now. There's different plants. Each one has its own different personality and has its own different kind of like um, target, so to speak. You know, we look at lion's mane as a, as a mushroom, and that is particularly useful for the health of the brain and cognition, memory. Rhodiola, especially useful for the health of the adrenal gland and its ability to help people tolerate stressful uh I I say environment, I don't mean environment in the, like the global warming kind of sense. I mean, environment, like the environment in which we live, right? We, 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 you know, humans, let me take a tangent here for a second. Humans are really interesting, right? We have a stress management system that was built after millennia of, of exposure to really heavy environmental stress, stress. That's like life or death, right? Like a zebra running away from a lion. It's like, if you don't get away, you're going to die, right? Life or death. And Thankfully, because of many modern conveniences, most of us don't find ourselves in life or death situations very often, right? I don't know if you have, I hope you haven't. I don't. My my life is pretty good. Like most days, I don't worry that I'm going to get attacked and eaten. Most days, I, I don't really have real threats to my life, which is great. There was a time when we did, you know, become a victim of a predator. So Instead, but we still have this system that really works really well for that, right? It's a, it's called the fight or flight system for a reason, but most of us don't really find ourselves in threats to life situation. Thank goodness. Um, But we still use that system for everyday stresses. Oh my gosh, I'm going to be late for the podcast. Oh my gosh, I got an email. Oh my gosh, I owe a big tax bill. Oh my gosh, whatever. Right. And we use this fight or flight system that's designed to protect us in threats to life situations to handle an email or to handle, you know, a financial problem. And these are not really threats to life. And so we react, we overreact, we overreact to these kinds of problems. It's as if for many people that a lion is like nipping at their heels all the time. Right. And that's stressful. And adaptogens now back to adaptogens, help put some space in between the person and the lion, put some space in between the situation and the reaction to the situation. They help us adapt and handle are unique human stressors in a more balanced kind of way. And I find adaptogens extremely useful for doing that in clinical practice.
0: Is there like a, and I can appreciate there's, you know, different adaptogens for different types of targets that you're going for, or just different types of health benefits that you're aiming for. But maybe is there like a top three or a top five that you think somebody should consume? I'm not even sure, like would daily be, appropriate or is it like on a weekly or do you rotate it like one day you do this the next day you do this like like can you even overdo it is it like you know someone's like i take 10 of these every single day is that like "Mm, that's a little too much let's not let's
1: cut back a little bit on
0: that (laughs) like how does that work yeah
1: and that's a great question and and the answer of course depends right it depends on the person depends on their circumstance depends on the herbs that we're talking about but i mean for for general use i think the 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 adaptogens that I'm maybe the most fond of for general use in the general population, and 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 I would say the vast majority of them are exceedingly safe. So it's really hard to get in trouble uh, with long-term use or even you know, these are like uh, as safe as foods in in most cases. Um, I'm a huge fan of rhodiola, rhodiola rosier, um, arctic root. Um, and that is a plant that I think, um, is, does not get enough attention out there in the mainstream media, even in health world, um, natural health world. Rhodiola rosier is a plant that is close to my heart. And I, I think is, uh, exceptionally useful adrenal adaptogen. That would be number one. Another that probably also doesn't get enough attention. I mentioned it briefly, uh, is Eleutherococcus synticosus. That's, um, the Siberian ginseng. Eleuthero, um, also very safe, tasty um, and exceptionally useful for helping people stay, keep their heads above water, right? Like stay productive despite the stresses, stay alert and energetic. So Eleuthero is a big one in my, uh, in the adaptogenic world. And then, uh, and then, you know, and, and this is, this is probably category three, but it's, there's so many different adaptogens in this category as medicinal mushrooms. You, you mentioned a bunch of them briefly, um, lion's mane, turkey tail, King trumpet, shiitake, maitake, reishi, um, cordyceps, these, these mushrooms are, uh, they've become the darling of Hollywood now, right? You know, we're starting to see, you know, kind of some interesting, uh, uh, mainstream media about, about cordyceps, especially taking over the world. There's a, there's a a series right now that's very popular. Um, and, um, and lion's mane getting a lot of attention in the research world for its beneficial effects on cognition, mood, and memory. Um, and, uh, medicinal mushrooms as a category have to be way up there on my list of beneficial adaptogens. And yeah, each one has its different target. Very, very safe, as safe as most foods.
0: Is there... Ones that you shouldn't take every single day, or like, or could you take like you're like in the morning? I take Lion's Mane at nighttime. I take Reishi, and then throughout the day, I take. I'm gonna totally butcher the one that you like, the robus Ro- the rodeola uh,
1: Rodiola, Rodiola. <laughs> the
0: Rodiola. Yeah. Like, it, yeah. I mean, is, is it too much to do all of those things every day, or would you, in your experience, is that it totally fine to do, and you know, it should be done daily?
1: Yeah, so most of the herbs that we just talked about, including rhodiola and, and, and eleuthero, the, those those are considered tonics, right? By by herbal by herbalists and herbal medicine specialists, and tonics are are um, are perfectly safe and useful for daily use, right? Tonics are the kinds of. In fact, much of the research on a lot of these herbs is like administering them on the daily, right? Like regular basis, regular administration on the daily to try to improve. Um, you know, output, um, energy, immunity over the longer term. So many of the early studies, a lot of these come from from the far east, and um, you'll see studies where people will be given, you know, a small dose of one of these adaptogenic herbs like Eleuthero or Rhodiola. Upon entering the factory that they're going to work, and a, and a similar factory is given a placebo. And when you look at these people who have been given the Eleuthero every day, you know for a year, you see that at the end of that year, they've they've been more productive in the factory. The the the, the outputs of the factory are higher and more accurate. They've missed le- they've missed uh, fewer days from from um, from sickness. So yeah, a lot of adaptogenic herbs the vast majority of them can be used on the daily uh, if it's necessary. If a person needs that kind of tonic support, I do want to emphasize though, that these things I think of them as medicines, right? Like they're, they're medicines to be used when you, when you need them, hopefully people are using diet, lifestyle you know the uh their own sleep their own stress management capabilities hopefully that that's the lowest rung right that you should do all that stuff first and if that's not getting you where you need to be or if the stresses are are such that you're still you know even though you have all those foundational things in place and you're still not where you want to be sure bring in adaptogens and see where you go so yeah all of the ones that we've mentioned uh I I take many of them regularly the company that I own um up wellness makes um adaptogenic drink powder. And I, um, I take that every day in, uh, in the afternoon. So it gives me, gives me a little, uh, a little, a little boost. So yeah, they're safe. They're safe for long-term use and daily use.
0: Is there anybody who shouldn't be doing it? I'm obviously in the state of my life where I'm like pregnancy and breastfeeding is like a real thing. And there's so many rules about what you can and can't have, but even anybody else, like if someone's going through treatment, is there like a, consult your md about this or is there just anybody who should be wary about consuming these types of adaptogenic herbs
1: right well so we're always very careful about the babies and the unborn right you know and 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 we're careful there for obvious reasons of course and um the rules that are in place are are often there because we just don't know, right? So a lot of times when you're being told not to do something, um, it's not because we know that it's bad. It's because we don't know that it's safe. And those are two two very different things. So, you know, we have pregnancy categories for these different things. And and a lot in the herbal medicine and natural medicine world just, just haven't been looked at close enough to be able to make a definitive statement that it's safe. And if we can't make a definitive statement that it's safe in pregnancy or lactation, then uh, then we just say, you're better off not doing it unless of course you really need it, you know, and like, it's the, it's the, it's an important part of your protocol to keep you to keep you well in some other way. So you mentioned pregnancy and lactation you know, each one of these herbal medicines has a, has a unique profile. Many of them have been studied for interactions with medications. So what I do, you know, I, I told you, I'm a medical director at up wellness. And one of the things that I do every day is I receive questions from customers. And very often those questions are, I take XYZ medication. And often it's like XYZ, PDQ, ABC medication, like a lot of them, right? A long list. I just answered one yesterday. I think the person was on 13 different medications. It's unbelievable. Um, and that's not uncommon. Um, and then they want to know, like, can I take this? Can I take that? They they Sometimes it's questions about products that I've created. Sometimes it's questions about other products that they want to take um, I'm out there in the, inter-internet world and, you know, people find me and ask me questions and I answer them, right? So I spend chunk of my day every day answering these kinds of questions. And the answer is always, especially from a, I got to protect my own interests here. I have to say, ultimately, that the answer to that question, whether or not you can take turmeric with the medications that you're on is between you and your doctor or your pharmacist. But let me give you a little background to help inform that discussion. And then what I do is I go to a database and I look at the database and I look for studies that have been done on whether or not there's interactions with that drug and that herb. And in many cases, there aren't, in which case I say that there aren't, you know, and you, you can tell your doctor about that. In many cases, there are interactions and there's all sorts of different interactions. Some, some herbs and drugs mix in such a way that the drug um, becomes less potent, and that could be a problem. Some herbs and drugs mix in such a way that the drug becomes more potent. That could also be a problem. Some herbs and even foods interfere with the metabolism of a drug in the liver. And sometimes, you know, that can be a problem. Sometimes that can be an advantage. So it's impossible to answer the question generally. Um, uh, You know, yes, pregnancy and lactation is always a caution. People who are on medications is always a caution and we need to be careful there. Uh, And then people who have uh, serious conditions or are under treatment for serious conditions sometimes need to be careful, especially conditions that are related to the thinning of the blood, um, because that's a that's an area where we get a lot of um, questions and concerns about the value or the safety of herbal medicines. Here's the problem, though. I mean, and this is a funny thing, you know. People are told to ask their Western medical doctors about the safety or the usefulness of a drug, and those doctors have no training in that, so it's a frustrating position to put a patient in. I want to talk to my doctor about it, but they don't know anything about it. So what am I supposed to do?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I hope this whole episode goes without like, you know, you have to be your own advocate and do your own research about things. But um, I'm curious, what does your daily health and wellness rituals look like? What are you taking supplement wise every single day? Are you finding movement every day? Are you doing some sort of breathwork or meditation or you know some sort of biohack like i'm just curious what your day to day looks like
1: yeah, thank you for asking. Um, first, I'm very grateful. I'm I'm healthy. Um, and I'm I'm I, I work at that, you know. Um, so I I'm um I'm grateful for that. And um I'm also proud of myself because I do work on it, right? Um, and I think my genetics are pretty good. So thank you to my parents on that. <clears throat> so my routine is v- I have all those foundations pretty well in place. My diet is minimally processed primarily whole foods, you know, I, I eat like the perimeter of the grocery store. I have eggs delivered from a local farm. Um yeah, so I eat uh foods that are in minimally processed kind of way. I exercise every single day. Um, and that usually involves a walk in the woods with my dog who happens to be sitting right over there. Um and uh and often uh some additional exercise beyond that lifting heavy stuff so to speak. I'm a big fan of using resistance bands. So I have a Gym in my basement that I use in addition to my daily walk. Um, I try to manage my swell. I have a lot going on in my life, but I, I I think I do a pretty good job managing it in any number of different ways, talking it out um, with my wife or whoever it is, um, and and then trying to find balance um, in the the work life kind of way. So yeah, those foundational things are intact. I'm grateful to not take any uh, conventional medications for anything. So I'm proud about that. Uh, and then in terms of supplements, there's two that I that I use on the regular. I mentioned one of them already, which is an adaptogenic herbal medicine blend. It's, it happens to be made by my company, Up Wellness. It's called Mojo and I put it in my afternoon coffee. So I put Mojo uh, in my afternoon coffee, and that's uh, my way of giving my adrenal glands and my stress management system a boost with uh, herbal medicines. And it contains a lot of the ones that we talked about, rhodiola, eleuthero, um, goji berries, ashwagandha, I don't think we talked about, and then a whole uh, complex of six different medicinal mushrooms, many of the ones that we just talked about so that's up wellness mojo i take that every day and then i also use uh, an anti-inflammatory i gotta be careful saying that um because the fda doesn't love us talking about herbs in the same way we talk about drugs but a formula that i designed to help manage inflammation and muscle tension and fibrosis for musculoskeletal pain and that's called golden revive plus and that's um that's a product that i also take on the daily as well and that's it really that's it
0: I, I want to be super mindful of your time, but, uh, one of the things you brought up too, and I feel like we could have a whole other podcast episode about it, is like this idea of genetics. Cause you were saying like your genetics are pretty good. My family's like a train wreck when it comes to that. Mm-hmm. And that's always something that's in the back of my head, but, uh, yeah. like I'm a relatively healthy person, but like, I mean, you think of it, my family has had disease, cancer, and it, it the list goes on and on. And, you know, I would love maybe, you know, if you come back we could talk about how we can influence some of our genetics so that that we're not so predisposed to all of that because I think that's something that you know a lot of people could say well that's just like I'm it's destiny my family's like that it's just the way it's going to be and I've always been like no because my family's like that I do what I can to try to reverse or at least counter that as much as I possibly can
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, and and thank you for the respect for my time. We'll we'll, we'll wrap it up here quickly. But I think it's worth addressing. Uh, You use the word destiny, and it comes up a lot in my conversations about genetics, because it's very clear that in the vast majority of cases, your genetics are not your destiny. They're just not, right? These genetics, most of them that we're talking about. Now, of course, there are some diseases that are inherited genetically, like, you know, that that you're just not going to escape, right? You you get passed down this particular gene or set of genes, and you're going to go on to develop that disease. But most of the ones that we think of as genetic, right, The canc- most of the cancers, um, most of the cardiovascular risks, the risks of neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, etc., those kind of chronic things, diabetes even... There are genes that are associated with risk or with the vulnerability of developing that problem, and it's only when the environment, which is the diet, the, you know, the toxins in the environment, other factors, turn those, the, the the switches on, so to speak, that the genes begin to express themselves. And then the person goes on to develop the disease. And it turned, this is a major field of study now, which is called epigenetics, which is wrapping our genome, right? And the, the epi, epigenome is flicking the switches, right? Whether or not genes get turned on or turned off. And so a big part of, you know, dietary, lifestyle, stress management, all the stuff that we're talking about here today is about trying to keep the genetics of disease suppressed and keep the genetics of health turned on or activated. And there's the, the flicking of those switches is what epigenetic medicine is really all about. And it is a very good reason to live well, right? To consider things like exercise and stress management and diet and all the things that you're doing. It's, it's, there's, there's no, there should be no better motivation than having a family history of these kinds of things now i'm guessing that in your family with these various different types of problems many of the people in previous generations didn't make the same choices that you made they may have smoked they may have not eaten well they may have lived in a toxic area you know worked in a, in a job where they were exposed to environmental toxins etc and those are the things quite likely that took them from being vulnerable to the development of disease to actually having it and there's a very good chance that if you conduct yourself differently that you won't have that same outcome. And so that's that's that should be motivating.
0: Dr. it. I feel like I could talk to you forever, but I would love if you could let our listeners know where they can go and check you out online. Maybe they want to see what you're up to. Maybe they want to check out some of your uh, products that you sell through Up Wellness. If you want to just share where everybody can go and yeah. check you out, that would be amazing.
1: Sure, sure. Um, if you want to... Uh, check out what I'm doing. There's a few different places. Um, yes, Up Wellness is, is the company that I founded, um, and I'm the medical director, and that's upwellness.com. That's an easy place to find me there, and that's where all the products, um, some of which we mentioned today, we'll, you'll, you'll find those. Um, I'm also on Instagram and talking, even in the same room, you know, uh, <laughs> making videos, um, sharing snippets from podcasts, and providing educational and hopefully entertaining content on natural health. And that's on Instagram, um, dr. Josh Levitt, D R J O S H L E V I T T. That's me on Instagram. You can join. I think I've got about sixty-five thousand other people on there right now too. And so that's a fun venue. I've been making TikToks lately as well, and the um, the handle there is is at Up Wellness. And some of those have TikTok is a crazy place, but um, but that's uh if you you can find me there on at Up Wellness. Little at sign and then Up Wellness. Um, and we've had a few that have really gone viral over there, which is really something. Um, and um and a fun place to engage as well. So those are three good places to check me out. Upwellness.com, at Dr. Josh Levitt on Instagram, and at upwellness on TikTok too.
0: Perfect. I will make sure everything is linked in the show notes. Thank you so much for this conversation. This has been so enlightening.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thank you. It was, it was a pleasure to be here and good luck. I always like to say, have a nice baby. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah.
0: If you love this podcast episode, spread the love by sharing this with your friends and family, share it out on social media, and don't forget to give it a five-star rating and review. From the bottom of my heart, I am so grateful that you are here. Until next time.